Hello, my name is Ben Ashby. I'm Tom Trawful. And we are the co-hosts of the Future Proofing Finance podcast on behalf of the CFA. We dig deep into the latest innovations and technologies that are disrupting finance in the digital age. And yes, sometimes we do talk about crypto. Today, I am joined by Max Belton. He's a partner and founder of IQ Capital in Cambridge. And together, we'll be basically discussing deep technology, the venture capital industry, and what kind of innovation and disruption we can expect to see. Max, welcome. Hi, uh, pleasure to be. Thank you for the invite. Just to kick off with our standard question, tell us a little bit of your journey about how you ended up founding your own venture capital firm and getting involved in technology. Back then, it was a much smaller industry. So for me, it was very much serendipity. I'm an economist by, by, um, by training. Um, I went uh, to work into essentially private equity, but with a very significant telecom edge after the university. By luck. So it was essentially a fund that was buying mobile operator licenses around the world, predominantly in developing countries, and then sending the money, sending the teams to build them into regional and uh, increasingly national operators. That was my kind of first stint, you know, um, a um, building building an operator from complete scratch, um, which which was uh, amazing, um, and that's where I think I got my startup bug. And then I um, and I came to Cambridge um, and uh, did my MBA here. Started working for a local asset management firm and uh, running the seed investment practice. And that was the transition from kind of PE into the VC world, which at the time I thought was a really good idea because it was 2000 and year 2000 2001. It was it was very very hot um, for tech and. Um, and I thought I knew something about it, um, which, you know, spent the next five, six years learning that maybe I didn't and um, getting all kinds of bumps. But in the process of which I got to know the Cambridge community really well, the London investment community. And then that led to me partnering with my two co-founders, um, uh, Ed Stacey and Carrie Baldwin. And we set up IQ Capital back, back in 2007. So two questions there. What made you sort of launch your own firm? What was the opportunity you saw? Was it just that you wanted to run your own business? And the second thing is, I know you are one of the leading investors in deep tech. So I was wondering if you could talk us through exactly what that means. Well, I mean, the first bit was easy. Uh, we, um, I think most VC firms are independent for a reason, because, because there's no particular logic of being part of a bigger firm and you know it gives you the independence it of course gives you the bigger financial incentives i always wanted to run my own business so it also coincided at the time and we felt that we were sufficiently established to be able to convince investors um to raise the first fund and and we decided to set it up uh, on our own the um the and as far as the deep tech is concerned again um uh, if you look back at what my partners have been doing, so Ed has been in venture since mid '90s, investing in 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 deep tech companies in and around Cambridge. Um, Kerry has been working with him as well. So we we had a relatively um, and and then when I started in Cambridge too, a lot of companies that we were coming across were deep tech companies. So so. so and, and we always felt very passionate about the fact that deep tech gives you an extra edge. Now that we, so, you know, looking back at it, I mean, I guess it just happened that way. Um, um, but we stayed and uh, with that investment focus over the years and are very deep tech centric um, um, till, the, till now, because we think that 
venture, if you look back at what happened in, in, in Silicon Valley in the 80s and, and 90s, that, that was you know very deep tech-centric. Um, but the last 20 years, we've seen a proliferation of, of what we call shallow tech, you know, a little bit more of kind of software-driven business model innovation. And um, it, it, it's great because it, it, it's relatively capital, capital efficient. It, it opens up new opportunities for, for big businesses. But, but ultimately, how many Ubers do you need out there? And, and, and more importantly, from an investment perspective, especially when you invest at an early stage, it's very difficult to predict which companies will be the ultimate winners if you don't have a long-term competitive advantage. And for us, technology is the long-term competitive advantage. So that's why we're back it. So could you explain to sort of investors what exactly would the definition be of deep tech compared to, as you said, shallow tech is a bit more software, a bit more sort of uh, service perhaps driven. But what, what defines a deep tech company for you? At the core of it, um, it needs to be a scientific or engineering breakthrough, um, a significant step change in, in what is possible on the technological or product level, 10 times, sometimes a thousand times improvement um, on performance. Um, one, uh, um, it needs to be highly innovative um, and protectable for us. Um, so you can build uh, patents, you can build uh, know-how around it, May ultimately giving you a few years of a head start of a competitors that might want to come into that space. And number three, it needs to be addressing a massive market opportunity, which is worth billions of dollars, hopefully tens of billions of dollars. Because again, from the investment perspective, deep tech is much broader than what we invested and we only focus on a certain part of deep tech, which we think is suitable for the investment model. But from the investor's perspective, what we we are conscious that any company will have significant risks over its journey. And on average, you are looking at, you know, 30% plus uh, risk to failure anyway. The point is that if you succeed, you want to make sure that the price is worth having. So therefore, we're focusing on, on opportunities which are addressing relatively big markets. If 50 engineers can rebuild your company in less than three years, it's not deep tech. Excellent. That is a really useful definition. Doesn't that mean, though, I know we were discussing this earlier, but doesn't that mean that effectively deep tech investments are, tend to be a lot more capital intensive? It's a lot earlier in their journey. And also, potentially, wouldn't it be a problem identifying perhaps the end user market? One of the other guests that we had on there said that one of the issues they have with Cambridge in particular is there's lots and lots of very clever people with very clever technology, but they struggle to actually find true end user things. Now, I know you said very deep markets, but how do you identify that when you've got something that really is such advanced technology? I would say that there are different types of innovation. So, um, And it's very important in deep tech uh, when you are thinking about it from the investment perspective to stay on the right end of the spectrum. Because we try not to invest in research, which is years away from productization. Um, we Our focus is, is um, companies which are a maximum of two years away from product, from product in the market. Um, that's one. The second big thing is that market need being present and current. Um, you can experiment with new business models and, and new um um, silos of demand when you are in shallow innovation and you can actually add, um, you can be more agile and change whatever you do very quickly and can experiment with relatively small investment. In deep tech, our focus is to say, we want to see a big market today 
All we're doing is we are innovating on the product and bringing something which is five, 10 times, 50 times more efficient than whatever is operating in that space today. So, um, so yes, there are many companies and many technologists that are that that are innovating for the sake of innovation. But for us, the investable part of deep tech is one that is addressing a known established big market today. I was going to ask a follow-on question because I mean it seems like you've defined the the surface uh, area pretty pretty well. It's quite complicated for non-technical people to to dig uh, to pretend to dig deeper, and so I won't um, because I am not. Um, but I wanted to ask you briefly um, the deep tech that you see around at the moment being talked about being AI. How many of uh, how many such kinds of problems do you see being solved on a regular basis? Is this one that's just coming out now? There's been five or more years in the making. AI is one part of deep tech, and, and because deep tech does come in the, a number of sign- very, very large um, silos, if you will, uh, even if you're generalizing all the way new energy to materials and robotics to space tech to synthetic biology, synthetic chemistry, and of course, software-based innovation, which is generally powered by a differentiated algorithm of some sort, which are increasingly connected to novel AI. Um, and even within AI, you have the well-known, well-established off-the-shelf algorithms that are applied to the known business problems, which we kind of feel is borderline shallow tech these days because it's not really requiring deep innovation. It's not protectable um, versus novel AI where a bit like chat GPT that everybody talks about, it's it's really coming up with completely different approaches, either in your algorithms themselves or the data or a bit of both. Um, so, um, how, how deep is it? Um, well, I think it's a little bit like the known universe. It's, it's kind of growing all the time and it's touching, touching new areas of everyday life. Um, sometimes unpredictably. I mean, I was even with chat GPT, I was watching the video the other day where they've integrated it with a humanoid robot and, and then, you know, having essentially an open conversation, it's mind blowing what's, what's possible. And, and of course, a lot of the uh, novel AI um, that we're investing in is just as transformative to the problems that they are solving. It's just that it's not necessarily quite as visible to the consumer and not quite as easy to dress it into a, a humanoid robot and, and, and show you just how um, powerful that is. But but yeah, I mean, I think the world is, is, is being changed in very fundamental ways. And I think some of the bigger problems that we face as society can only be solved uh, by technology and specifically deep tech, big change in, in performance of some underlying uh, properties of what we're using. Because, you know, if we are to live on the same planet in the next, in, in 200 years, we, we need to change things a lot. With regards to uh, our listeners, they're obviously CFA members. You're at the absolute forefront of the industry and some of the technology changes, and you obviously get to see a lot, even if it's not quite in your field. If we were looking forward, and I know this is very tough, but if we were to look forward five, 10 years, what would the advice be and, and the areas you would suggest that our members should be looking at at the moment? Where could you really see disruption, particularly around either certain industries or even the finance sector itself? I think. Um, What excites us is so-called crossover innovation. Um, That's when we see inventions from one area of um, uh, human thought um, addressing problems in another area. 
um, I don't know, AI in biology or life sciences, robotics um, in the human body, um, uh, augmented reality of various sorts, um, using AI across all kinds of industries, um, novel materials in space, uh, or or indeed in new energy, for example. Those are the kinds of themes that will keep giving because you're bringing something that you know, is fundamental innovation to to a known big problem. And we have plenty of examples in the portfolio where it has produced huge outcomes. I'd love to understand a bit more about crossover because this is something that I'm quite fascinated by too. Just it, it, it delves into my ignorance. I mean, I have lots of friends in healthcare and I've been working in spreadsheets all my life. Surely I should know how to operate in spreadsheets. And yet they teach me something brand new. This is 15, 20 years ago. Um, what, how do you... How do you foster that relationship of crossover investments? Is that something that you, the investor, does or that the innovator does or a bit of both? I think it's a bit of both. Um, most of the time, uh, we expect the founders and the innovators themselves. And increasingly, there's a very shallow line between the two. It's not You're not looking at somebody wearing a white coat in the lab and, and saying, oh, I'm responsible for your technology. You teach me what to do with it. They are the people on the far front uh, of thinking and trying to be problem solvers as well as inventors. Um, but so we don't genuinely look at pick something and say, hey, why don't you apply that to a completely different area? Um, we sometimes have ideas and we sometimes help the team to examine it, but fundamentally it comes from the founder teams. And 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 yeah, I mean, a physicist um, applying their skills in in life sciences is a very typical type of background, um, where where you start seeing that a you know a small robot that is being put inside human human body at the molecular level. Those those are the sorts of, of course, AI in 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 all sorts of biological applications from you know reading. Uh, re reading your scans to discovering new molecules and and, and new drugs, um, we invested in one company recently, which is in in um, in industrial chemistry space, and um, it's inventing, it's trying to discover new enzymes that can sometimes move clinical uh, chemi chemical processes by a factor of 10, 20 times in terms of efficiency, pollution, um, and so on, and you know. A company that is capable of generating the number of targets, which is a hundred times, hundred thousand times more than ever before, and and those kinds of things that they're using essentially the drug discovery tools, tool sets, and and a bit of robotics applied to a very a very boring but very very large industry. Can I ask you about just the state of the VC industry in Europe? I remember you telling me once in uh, a previous conversation we had just how much it had grown over the last 20 years. But I was wondering if you can kind of suggest where we are now, where is it strong, where is it weak? Also, just in terms of funding, is it more available? Obviously, we seem to be going into a bit of a downturn, but have you got a developed base of investors these days, or is it still something that you scratch your head and think, why are not more people putting their money into this? The industry has grown uh, tremendously in the last 15, 20 years. Um, so um, by a factor of 30 times in Europe. So um, it's 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 hard to complain. Um, and some... <laughs> The irony in Europe is that 
it hasn't happened in a sort of in a steady line. It's been a bit uh, a bit of a jump up and down. And every time that there's an uplift, um, uh, people start complaining that maybe it's too hot and there's too much money going into that. And 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 the moment there's a downturn, um, everybody's shouting that it's not enough and companies are not capable to raise enough money and so on and so forth. So, um, but the overall direction has been going up quite substantially. Um, I think we are finally at the point in Europe where the ecosystems are built enough to be able to not just generate the inventors, but also generate, but also to have some entrepreneurs, to have some product people, salespeople, all the other parts of the functional areas in the company that are required to build a successful outcome. Uh, and 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 we've seen that in Cambridge over the last sort of 35 years, but the there's plenty of pockets from not not just in the UK, of course, but but on the continent as well, um, that are just as good as as what we see in the US. And and in terms of returns, in terms of the capital being raised, Europe is somewhat behind the US on on the total volume. Um, still by three to five times, depending on what you look at. Uh, but, you know, you're starting to see comparable number of startups. You're starting certainly over the last 10, 15 years, you're seeing um, uh, comparable or even exceeding level of underlying returns. So it's 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 starting to be um, very attractive as an industry. And it's an industry that has become more than a cottage industry. Um, it has I remember being one of the very few uh, in the UK investing in deep tech. We WhatsApp group for UK deep tech VCs now has 350 people, um, and 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 that happened mostly in the last two years. So that it's 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 very um, it's very satisfying. But but yeah, I mean, from the perspective of investment into the field, um, we still see a lot of institutional investors allocating to US funds. Um, um, institutions do have long-term memories, and I think they they've burned their fingers in the '90s, and and they've kind of um, they're still at the point of thinking that you know venture only happens in the U.S. and that's where we have to allocate. So we we could do with more money in Europe, especially uh, at at later stages, uh, and and that's something that people talk a bit about. Um, I mean, uh, at the moment, uh, the good thing is that capital has become very global, and we have seen a lot of U.S. GPs move over to the, to to Europe, and and that's great. They bring um, a very useful perspective. They bring later stage capital as well, uh, which is very helpful. So, but you know, some feel that we should be better at doing that in, in Europe. I was wanting to follow on that question, if uh, that's all right, because. Um, I know there's a lot of talk about the weight of capital and its effect on innovation, particularly through VCs. But what are the other things that may be missing? I mean, just this morning, I was reading an article about uh, French AI and the expertise and how it's, it leaves France very, you know, uh, uh, at, at an early opportunity. Um, are there other factors such as density of, you know, that kind of innovation, uh, you know, that those hubs and stuff like that? Or is there anything else you've observed that is or isn't working in Europe? Well, I mean, th that's the whole point behind an ecosystem. For for a company to be, for a scale-up to be built, and it's not enough to just see the inventions. It's not enough to just be able to raise capital. It's about access to talent. It's access to uh, to advisors. It's genuinely finding 
um, yourself uh, amongst people that understand what you're doing, customers, um, uh, not being on the other side of the planet is quite useful. Um, and, and, then, and then, you know, scale up expertise, going international, being in a country where um, you have a tax regime, which is relatively friendly towards people building those companies, because all technology is global and people can choose, you know, that's coming back to France, for example, you know, for years, as a country, they suffered because it was very, very unfriendly to the tech entrepreneurs. Um, so, so all of those elements need to be right. And, and then, of course, it also culminates with exits and, you know, your, your own technology scale-ups in your country and your capital markets and all that. So all of that needs to work. Could I ask, just at the time of recording, ARMS just decided to obviously list in the US. And I know that's probably a fairly uh, hot topic in Cambridge at the moment, given how important it is uh, historically to the local infrastructure. What are your thoughts on that? Europe, it just the valuations are better, or essentially London isn't the right place, or indeed Europe isn't the right place for it. And I was also just wondering, just where do you see the future for ARM? Because obviously it's effectively been a bit of a forced divestment. There seems to be a view that effectively the company may have to be broken up going forward. I think if you were talking about more um, IPOs, European IPOs more, more generically, um, uh, you know, there are many elements to as to why London has ended up or other European markets have ended up to where we ended up. But the reality is that the, despite all the pretense to the otherwise, uh, not, we are just so much behind. There's hardly any pure technology companies listed in London. And that leads to not just the level of um, capital that you are able to raise during IPO, it's the most importantly, the sophistication of the analysts that are there um, and, um, you know, a level of trading in your stock. Uh, yes, the multiples that people are prescribing, people's ability to see the future, not the past, are all the elements that, that NASDAQ has developed. And sadly, I think in Europe, we're still struggling. Although it's good to see that it's it's not about LSE anymore and, and uh, some other exchanges and uh, that are starting to become a bit more active on the technology front, but still it's 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 very far behind NASDAQ. So not surprised at all that ARM went for that. And um and 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 the bit that people don't really uh, see in in the news flow is that it's not a, a black and white. It's not like NASDAQ or an LSE. That wasn't even a question for him. Arm decided not to have a second listing on LSE purely because of the extra cost and realizing that it doesn't really give anything extra. That's where you're really starting to be into the, oh, oh we have a problem. Can I just ask about the secondary benefits of an IPO? When you see a sort of exit, or not even just an IPO, but when you see an exit, do you often see, obviously, the capital flows in locally if you've sold to an international investor or, or um, obviously, a, say, a US or, or Asian corporation? But does it really matter where that firm is now headquartered? Do you see the technology drifting away or do you see the fact that the entrepreneurs have sold their business, they perhaps hang around for a few more years and then they go to start something? Is there a kind of, does it build the wider ecosystem or does that final purchase and where it takes place really make a difference ultimately about what happens to the firm? I don't think it's black and white. Um, I think largely any technology exit generates a huge amount of innovation. And even if you look at 
local wealth and continued innovation. So even if you look at ARM, it has already produced multiple multiple of spin-out companies, multiple millionaires from you know Herman Hauser and the start of Amadeus Capital, uh, all the way to uh, a bunch of, of startups, some of which we are invested in, like Accelicom, for example. Um, so um, the um, so every exit generates um, gen generates significant innovation follow up, and any exit and any successful company generates. 10 or 100 more. So to a certain extent, it doesn't matter very much who buys it um, and whether or not it's listed uh, on what market. But um, what also happens with, say, a listing is that you will then have to have your headquarters in, in the US as, uh, and gradually the gravitas of the company will start shifting. It will probably maintain significant R&D base and Cambridge or wherever it might be originally, but as the decisions are starting to be made elsewhere, you, your comparative weight and your comparative gravitas of the company changes, and that, of course, benefits the new location more than the old location. Can I ask a slightly political question, and feel free to pass it, but we had another guest on that made the point about who acquires it makes an enormous difference in terms of skill set. And they were saying that some of the US tech majors buy startup businesses for the reason that they don't necessarily want uh, competitors growing in certain fields. We've heard also that financial firms in particular tend to, traditional financial firms tend to be very poor acquirers of technology because usually there's a lot of regulatory uh, problems around it and sort of general inertia of the institution. So often once they've bought something, they fail to really implement it properly. I was just wondering if you've got any thoughts along those lines. To the first point, um, I haven't really seen much evidence uh, in, in in our experiences or the the inside stories that I have seen of uh, M&A acquirers um, shelving stuff just for the sake of malicious intent um, of, of shutting down competitive um, uh, um, um, uh, stories. Um, it, of course, often happens because um, anything in life, like anything in life, uh, corporate directions change and, you know, people, especially in M&A, there's always some sort of a champion and that changes and maybe the direction of the business changes and then sooner or later corporate finds that they shouldn't have acquired it and uh, so on. So, that, that, you know, but I think all I have seen is that it's done in the normal course of business and, and by and large, those companies um um do what they intend to do on the teal and uh, on the tin and, and they don't necessarily um they they genuinely behave in a very very um uh, sensible sustainable corporate responsible way with with what they do and how they behave um the um so uh, as far as the uh, fintech is concerned um you know, our footprint in fintech is not huge. We do have maybe 15% of our investments in fintech. So I'll just say that it's, uh, I don't necessarily have the perfect data point, although uh, ironically, the most successful company we currently have in our portfolio is, is, is a fintech. It builds it's a company called Thought Machine that builds core banking software and sells to the largest banks around the world. Um, so um, through that, 
yeah, I think I, I think financial players are probably not the most natural acquirers of technology. Um, they are much better suited for acquiring service or product. Um, and um, to the and, and and again, the nature of the technology logic is that it's a horizontal innovation. So you make most money if you sell. Uh, to everybody in a particular industry, and then if one big entity buys you, then and start using it for their own purposes, it by nature limits the impact of that technology of that product onto the rest of the industry. And and yeah, I mean, um, uh, very often um, service-based organizations are not best suited for maximizing uh the opportunity of this company so 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 yes i think if you are generalizing i would agree and you're much better off uh innovating across i just thought i'd uh, follow up on that question thought machine of uh looking through the investments and exits and things that you've done certainly looked very interesting um middle and back office functions and consolidating them smartly certainly sounds to anyone that's worked in a bank or financial services something that's uh well overdue <laughs> um and i know uh, there are some competitors but here in uh, in one of your write-ups you talk about with a few bumps and challenges um along the way uh would you care to elaborate on any of those bumps and challenges uh, that that you met i don't know how how often how long an answer do you want because <laughs> um that's eight years uh, of innovation here but that was an interesting case of a company starting as a deep tech spin-off from google where 20 engineers said look we're the best in the world of building cloud native software products we believe that um the next big thing is going to happen in financial services and more specifically banks because with the bubble being burst the banks will have no option but to innovate at the core because their lunch will be eaten by the fintechs and I, and is increasingly being eaten as well so um and that all turned out to be to be quite true and despite the fact that banks are not known for being most innovative they have found themselves in a situation where they have been forced to actually start thinking very very deep and, and replacing the it core banking systems that they have had for sometimes decades. Um, so, and that's where the company fit in. But the, the very first challenge they had was a bunch of engineers that were saying, hey, how hard can banking be? It's just like, come on, it, sending a billion emails a, a day is much harder than sell, sending a few thousands of payments. And I can calculate interest and da 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 da, da. Then, of course, of course, so first it was just getting the engineering mind against the specific challenges and the realities of what of what banks can and cannot do. Um, it was also standing up to um, to some of the early competitors uh, and and slightly predatory um, behavior um, of early partners um, that made it very difficult for a small startup to survive um uh so that was alone uh, a small miracle and, and and took a lot of kind of hard work by everybody involved and uh, but then you know i mean it's far from over i mean they they by now the company has you know 30 plus very large banks around the world and is growing very very rapidly and some of them are fantastic names like jp morgan chase or lloyds um 
So, but you know, it's compared to FIS or FISF, it's still it's still smaller, and we can be as arrogant and we as as we want in terms of our ability to disrupt the legacy players. But it's a long, long journey to do that and to actually deliver it. Um, so, um, so yeah, plenty of challenges. I love thinking about sending in a team of highly skilled uh, cloud engineers and just not seeing a million problems every time they every time they thought they got the problem statement sorted and they started defining the end goal, they'd find another what hundred problems on the way. I mean. It must just have been an infrastructure that looked from the uh, outside as simple to solve, and then on the inside, quite kind of not complicated, but just individually pod, uh, you know, in- individually siloed. Well, I, I think it helped actually to to have, this, and, and that's where you talk sometimes about crossover, because they looked at it purely from the infrastructure perspective, and they said, "Look, if our job is to make sure that you can have, I don't know, two hundred million concurrent users on the system." And this many payments, and and you want to have, you know, cloud ma- native capabilities, and and you know, um, automatic balancing, and and so on and so forth. And and how would you do that? And once you solve that, then the rest of it becomes more of a, you know, some feature sets, some APIs, some how flexible is the system to be able to adjust to to a different requirement that you didn't realize a bank would have. But once you once you solve some of the core challenges, it becomes a bit easier to go forward. And actually, as it turned out, in this particular application, you the only way to solve it was to start from a completely different slate and clean slate type of approach. Max, we uh, interviewed somebody from uh, Citigroup last year, and they were identifying that in the financial payments world, you've basically got three kind of classes. You've got the traditional banks who are attempting to kind of catch up in terms of technology, which obviously Thought Machine is helping them do. You had the e-payments companies that are kind of morphing into more traditional financial firms. So perhaps Revolut would be a good example of that. But the one that they identified that they thought potentially there was the highest disruption from was actually some of the blockchain companies. Now that they've messed around perhaps with areas that didn't work out, that these firms may well actually move into completely restructuring how payments and all that middle and back office settlement gets conducted. Have you seen any evidence of that? Certainly from my side as a, a former banker myself, I haven't seen many firms that I think are anywhere close to doing that. Well, yes. I mean, I think the the premise and promise of blockchain um, hasn't quite delivered as yet, and there's all kinds of reasons for for why it's been difficult. And I think um, you know, scalability is one, um, and then just changing very complex industries to be more dependent on it is is another. Um, just to pick up the two, so. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, when you're looking at something which is disruptive, you have to be very mindful of what are the barriers to disruption as well. And sometimes those barriers can be very substantial and not very obvious. And I think that's what we have seen with this particular um, uh, with, 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 with this particular set of technologies. So um, so yeah, I mean, uh, but the other thing is that again, a company like Thought Machine is actually using blockchain and on the side, and it uses smart contracts and so on. It's just that it's done in a private cloud, and you know that they they derive the benefit, but not make a big deal out of it. I wanted to ask you if there were any fish that got away. Um, sometimes we hear investors uh, and they uh, they got caught up on the 
uh, on the deal specifics and uh, and missed an investment or a- a- any any stories like that? I mean, you know, you always lose some. Uh, every firm has a, a an anti portfolio. Um, the um, without blowing our own trumpet too much, we're relatively good at um, convincing companies that we would be a good partner for them um, as as an investor. That's what I was hoping you'd say. And being in deep tech, do you believe that there's an extra layer? That I mean, obviously, you believe you've got a very strong background along with your founding partners and team. But um, can you explain that uh, to people? Because quite often in startup VCs, you know, not looking into such specific uh, niches, they they have quite generic sets of rules. I'd love to know some of the factors that you you use or you're interested in tracking. Well, particularly with more and more capital flowing into deep tech and new startup uh, VCs, you can't help but notice that yesterday people were crypto investors and blockchain. Today they are deep tech. The reality is that it's very difficult to be a deep tech investor without a solid background in the particular industry or set of industries on the knowledge level. And that's why our team is full of PhDs with many years of research, but then also commercialization. And then the big thing also, it's it's ultimately you have to work with the entrepreneurs for many years. So there's a big element of EQ on top of IQ that you have to bring. But first and foremost, you have to understand the subject matter and to be able to say, does that technology work? Is it scalable? Is it even true what the team is telling me? Because as an investor, you have to come to those answers pretty quickly. And if you can, then it actually carries a lot of weight to the founders because we keep hearing that, wow, I never thought the VC would understand it, or you're the only people that ask intelligent questions relating to that. And then you can get a lot of credibility quickly and help them to then say, Actually, you know that world, but we know the world of how do you think about product market fit and what markets do you address and what sort of things that you have to think about, which you will still have to decide, but we will ask you the right questions uh, on, on that and will help you to, you know, to think about it, to, uh, to brainstorm, uh, strategize. Part of the EQ is perhaps uh, in uh, speaking the language. Indeed, indeed. And, and, and yeah, can, that connection is, again, people think about it as transactional, um, but it's not. You know, we are, we are genuinely partnering with the entrepreneurs for, for years to come. And, you know, sometimes it takes, you know, four, five, six, seven, ten years to build a big company. And, and, and that's, the, that's the journey that you're really on for, for years. We've skirted around it a few times, and I was hoping we could talk uh, briefly. We talked about the weight of money and how it's changed. We've talked about the uh, US and European market. How are valuations being affected by uh, the most, well, yeah, the recent change in liquidity for VCs or for startups? Um, valuations are affected. Um, the closer you get to the, the exit event, um, so the later stage you are, the more conventional you are, the more these are affected because say in SaaS, it used to be 20x and now it's six, and, you know, and that's a very easy formula to apply to any any company. Um, I think fundamentally what people um, um, don't always appreciate is that at early stages, the risks are much more company specific. You know, losing... 20, 30% of investments as part of doing business in this industry. And typically, if the company is successful, 
the early stage valuations are not much a factor in how much of a return you make. It's whether the company is successful at all or not. Valuations really become a factor affecting returns from series B onwards. Um, all you have to make sure earlier on is that there's enough capital for the company available, either from the existing syndicate or you have the right the right ability to reach into the right investors. And you don't you don't end up several times out of the ballpark uh, in terms of how the business is priced because down rounds are painful. I mean, uh, for all kinds of reasons, and you don't want to see it. You just kind of want to see a gradual uplift, series of uplifts. But if you look back at, you know, in a multi-billion outcome, whether or not you paid one, two, or 10 million at, at that seed round, and, and how effective that was, how much of a difference it made, not very much. It's whether or not you're in that billion-dollar outcome. Max, I think we're almost out of time, but just last couple of things. What advice would you give to young entrepreneurs uh, or even older entrepreneurs getting into it, new sort of perhaps starting entrepreneurs uh, about going through? And also for those dark hours when things aren't working out, how how have you got any advice at how maybe to look at things? And the other thing is just if anybody wants to get into contact with either you or IQ Capital, what's the best way to do it? Um, I well, entrepreneurship is 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 a, is an amazing journey, and and building companies, understanding how to build companies is is not is not just highly rewarding for for the entrepreneurs themselves, but people around them. Uh, it's a great training ground as well for corporate careers sometimes. And we see many people then going back into corporate careers afterwards. Um, the um, But it's not it's not for everyone. It is, you know, it's it's not full of four-hour week, four-day four weeks and, 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 you know, healthy work-life balance. It, it is hard work. And it is hard work for years. And that affects families and it affects, you know, it takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of determination. And I don't think that there's another way of building companies than than just pure graft and desire and not giving up and driving it relentlessly. And that's what top entrepreneurs do. Um, so people need to understand what what's involved uh, when, when they uh, come on the journey. Um, so um advice wise i mean it i think i think there's no stigma of not being successful um these days people are afraid of that it's actually a great experience no matter what the outcome is and and therefore generally speaking i think it's it's it would be great to see more people trying um, those ideas that they've had for years and trying to actually implement it. And, and these days, there's so much more support around that it's actually better than ever and easier than ever to build um, to build a company on on, uh, on your own. Um, IQ Capital-wise, um, hello at iqcapital.vc is um, or our website is is always a good start. Uh, I am um, uh, also approachable through LinkedIn. Um, other partners are as well. In case people want to tap directly, the best way to um, to a VC is always through a warm introduction by somebody in their um, in 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 their close ecosystem, an entrepreneur that they've backed before, but are still somebody that they've made money with is is your top priority. So uh... solid advice. 
that's all for me. Have you got any questions, Tom, to finish off with? Just, just a follow-on question from your last one. Any plugs you want to throw in? I mean, we're here to help too. Uh, are there people you're trying to reach that perhaps, uh, you know, are sitting behind a CFA designation and we might be able to spread spread the good word? Well, um, my, my message to the allocators, to the institutional investors, uh, you know, deep tech is, mu is a must-have in any portfolio. The, that that is the the path to the future, and everybody needs to have an allocation through public markets, through private markets. Public markets is a bit harder to to reach into truly cutting edge stuff. So um, one should it doesn't have to be fifty percent of your portfolio, but there must be an element, and and people should invest the effort into learning more about it. Work with fund of funds if they if they feel that you don't want to allocate enough asset within your own firm to do that. Um, there are multiple ways of of achieving that outcome, but but um, I would strongly encourage everybody to really consider and understand that if you if you don't look at the view mirror, if you think about the future, that that is a very very essential part of everybody's portfolio. Brilliant. Sound advice. I couldn't agree more. And uh, certainly watching all the problems in uh, commercial real estate that are beginning to surface, I think it's a fantastic time to get involved in VC. But Max, thank you very much for me. And on behalf of the CFA, thank you. Tom? Thank you so much, Max. It was an absolute pleasure learning a bit, little bit more about Deep Tech and uh, the fantastic business that you've built. The pleasure has been all mine. Thank you for having me.